0: Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. And you can also find this uh, on your pew Bible, in your pew Bible, on page 817. Matthew twelve thirty-eight through 40, hear the word of the Lord. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Gracious God, we acknowledge that that every good and perfect gift comes from your hand we ask that you would teach us to live in light of that reality, to trust you that with all that we have. And Father, as we place our first fruits before you, would you use them for the good of your people and for the glory of your name? And Father, as we come now to your word, we ask that you would speak by your spirit, that you would teach us things that maybe we've never truly understood, that you would remind us of things that, Father, we've heard before, but we need to hear again. And ultimately, you would point us to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to dismiss our children now to Children's Church. It is great to be with you once again as we continue uh, our study of the book of Jonah. We began last week, we looked at chapter 1, where we learn about this prophet Jonah, this prophet who who hears God's word to preach to the Assyrians in Nineveh, and yet he he attempts to escape God's will. Um, He uh, attempts to escape God. And what I wanted us to see last week was was that is the natural response of human beings, even for religious people like maybe you or me, that that when God's word comes to us, our our default setting is to run from it. Because what we crave more than anything else is autonomy. Um, and, And God's word applies that we are accountable to something other than ourselves. That's Jonah, that's all of us as well. And what we saw last week was that God loves us too much to let us get away with it. And so God tracks down Jonah with with pinpoint accuracy, not to simply punish him, but but to rescue Jonah from himself. And so as a gift of God's grace, God sends a violent storm to, to thwart his plans. However, this storm has left Jonah for dead at the bottom of the Mediterranean. And this is where we find Jonah as we pick up where we left off in chapter 1, uh, verse 17, and continuing into chapter 2. So if you would take your Pew Bible, uh, you can find this passage on page 774 uh, and 775. This is Jonah chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. In the year 1820... A book was entitled uh, that was created was entitled "The Life and Morals of Jesus of nazareth it 's written by a man who who sought to construct what he deemed to be an accurate rendering of the events surrounding jesus 's life along with his teachings and, and and the criteria for what he would allow to to enter into uh, this work as opposed to what he would omit. Those things that that corresponded with reason. Therefore, if something was was supernatural in nature, it didn't quite make the cut. A miracle, for example, that's not going to make the cut in this work. This individual, of course, was uh, one of our founding fathers, founding fathers of this nation, Thomas Jefferson. Now, had Thomas Jefferson chosen to take on the Old Testament in addition to the Gospels, it's pretty safe to assume that the book of Jonah would not have made the cut either. Because what we find in the book of Jonah is a human being swallowed by a fish. doesn't doesn't say whale, it says fish. And this person stays alive inside this fish. And during this experience, this man has enough mental capacity to compose a, a poetic prayer to God that is recorded for us here. And then, after living within this fish for three days and for three nights, this man is then vomited out onto dry land and goes on to tell the greatest big fish story ever told. Understandably. A great many people hear this story and immediately write it off. That's that's a myth. It's a fable. It's a story that no educated, rational, reasonable human being could actually accept as having happened. Others, driven by their commitment to be faithful to to what the Scriptures teach, attempt to to soften the blow of this passage by by searching for all sorts of, of scientific or historical examples that make this story as outlandish as it may be, at least plausible. And so studies are made to find sea creatures with throats large enough to swallow a person or, or stomachs that could, could allow enough oxygen inside for a person to, to breathe inside of them or, or to find a historical example of a person being found inside of a whale that had been opened up. Through my studies of Jonah, I, I, I ran across these attempts. And, and, and to be clear, these attempts are not completely valueless, but I suspect that those who are skeptical or even dismissive of the historicity of this account will remain skeptical and dismissive when exposed to those type of examples. Because here's the thing, at the end of the day, the issue that we struggle with as we read Jonah is the belief in the supernatural the belief in the notion that there is something more going on than what we can see and what we can taste and what we can touch and what we can hear and what we can smell. Something more than what we can empirically prove. But if our problem with Jonah is that we cannot accept the supernatural, then our problem isn't just with Jonah. Our problem is with Christianity. Because Christianity is necessarily supernatural. Christianity tells us that there is a God who we cannot see or experience with our senses but who exists outside of time and space, who is responsible for everything there is. And and we realize this, right? That, That when you think about how this world came into being, when you boil it all down with all the different theories, opinions, whatever, there really are only one of two options. Either you and I and everything else arrived here through completely natural causes, or everything that exists in some way, shape, or form involves the supernatural. It's one of those two. Back in April, all over the world, we saw marches that took place that were advertised as a march for science. We see these go like this. We see these, the marches for science. Now here, I don't want to enter into some type of like culture war rhetoric I don't think is really helpful um, to anyone. Uh, but, but I will say this. There, the idea that there are people out there who are pro-science versus the anti-science people, there's the enlightened people who look at facts, and then there's the, the superstitious people who, who hold to dogma. It's just unfair and it's simplistic. Christianity is not anti-science, nor should its followers of Jesus be. But Christianity does reject a a naturalistic worldview, the idea that everything must have a scientific explanation. Because here's the thing, there's a great number of things that science cannot offer an adequate explanation for. Questions like meaning, purpose. Not simply how did we get here, but why are we here? What's it all for? Why do I have this, this ache in my soul to matter? Why do I long to, to love someone and to be loved as well? What do I do with all this, this guilt and shame that I feel? Why is it even there in the first place? Why do I, why do I hurt? Why do I get angry when I see injustice or suffering or, or death? Why do I experience joy in those moments where I, where, where I encounter something beautiful? What are we supposed to do with our lives? How are we supposed to live? Science struggles to answer those questions. But those are the questions that God's Word goes after. Oftentimes, however, we can become so consumed with debating or defending whether or not something did or didn't happen that we miss the point. We miss the why. Why is God communicating this to us in His Word? And so today, I want us to focus on the meaning behind this passage, Throughout chapter 1, Jonah is presented as moving towards a steady decline. Okay, First it says he he went down to Joppa, then it says he went down to the bottom of the the ship, and now he's down at the bottom of the sea. It points us to the inevitable result of our running from God, that sin is a downward spiral. Jonah wanted separation from God, and now he's getting some sense of what separation from God actually looks like and feels like, he finds himself in a helpless and hopeless situation, in a place where he is beyond some type of natural means of rescue. He's in a place now where if there isn't divine intervention, he is going to die. And what Jonah points us to is is that human beings desperately need to be saved. And for us to be saved, God must supernaturally act. The title of today's message is, Salvation Belongs to the Lord, which is taken directly from from verse 9 of chapter 2. For Jonah, God must respond by supernaturally intervening into his situation. And this intervention involves both salvation outside of him and salvation inside of him. And those are going to actually serve as our two points for today. First, God's salvation is outside of us. In verse 17, chapter 1, we're told that God appointed a fish to save Jonah. And it's really important. I don't think I, I didn't get this until seminary. I'm sure I heard it, but I just I wasn't paying attention. It's really important to understand this fish from Jonah's perspective. mean, As you read Jonah 2, Jonah's prayer. What you find is someone praying from inside the fish as if he's already been saved. Verse 1. Check this out. Verse 1. I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. Past tense. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol is the whole Old Testament concept of the place of, uh, of the dead. It says, out of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice again. Past tense. God has already heard his voice. Verse 9, weeds are wrapped around his head. Verse 7, his life was fainting away. But look what he says in verse 6. God brought his life up from the pit. Here's the question. How can Jonah, in the belly of the beast, pray as if he's already been rescued? The reason he can pray this way is because the fish where he has taken up residence, is not simply God's punishment. It's God's salvation. The fish is God's rescue of him from certain death left for dead at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Jonah knows that he should be dead right now, and he isn't. And Jonah knows that the God who sent the storm to come after him has actually appointed a fish To save him. He's alive because God sent a fish to scoop him up. And if he's alive right now, what that means is that God has plans for him beyond this fish. And so, Jonah prays not as a person who needs to be rescued. He's praying as someone who has been rescued. His prayer is one of thanksgiving. He uses that term. With a prayer of thanksgiving, I'm offering this to you. He is safe. He is secure right now. God has saved him and he's used miraculous, ridiculous, hilarious even, means to do it. But as crazy as this story is, in our New Testament reading we we heard earlier, we find Jesus pointing to Jonah as a historical figure and to these events as actually having had taken place. Jesus even connects his story to Jonah's story, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're asking for a sign from Jesus. Do, do something miraculous that'll, that'll make us believe in you. Dance for us a little bit. And Jesus has already done plenty of miraculous things. But because of their unbelief, they, they want more. They need constant signs. And so Jesus cites this, this wild, crazy story of Jonah spending three days three nights in a fish as the template for the sign he's going to give them. making making it clear that that Jesus himself is is comfortable with the outlandish too. There's the extent to which we as Christians, we can become so familiar with our story that we forget how crazy it is that that our rescue required the infinite, eternal God of the universe to become a human being. The, the, The supernatural became natural. The Word became flesh. Born in the middle of nowhere 2,000 years ago. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says this, You will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. God saves. Which means this. We don't save ourselves. Because we can't. We don't even cooperate with God for salvation because we don't have anything to contribute. Spiritually speaking, we are as helpless and hopeless as Jonah, stranded in the middle of the sea. And what the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, what it communicates to us is that God himself had to come down and fix our problem for us. Our daddy had to send our older brother to come bail us out. As much as we, we love Christmas, right? We love Christmas. But if you think about it, I mean, this, this holiday should actually, on some level, offend us because it's an indictment. It's an indictment of our inability. We couldn't save ourselves, and so somebody else had to come and do it for us. And the way Jesus rescues his people is by living in their place and dying in their place. By being what we couldn't be and dying the death we deserve on a brutal, bloody, disgusting cross. An image that would rival the disgusting image of, of say, living inside of a fish for three days and three nights. And then, after a period of all seeming to be lost, just like Jonah, Jesus rises from the dead. And by doing all of this, Jesus doesn't simply make salvation possible. He accomplishes salvation. He saves his people. Jesus says this, it is finished. It speaks of something that has been been completed. It's done. Just like Jonah, our salvation is 100% totally dependent upon the work of someone else. It's not something we do. It's not something we even contribute to. It's outside of us. And the way the New Testament talks about those who've experienced this salvation is really interesting. If you were to talk about somebody who actually like, buys into this Jesus stuff, we like this kind of stuff, we would typically refer to them as a, as a Christian, right? That's a Christian. The New Testament really doesn't use the word Christian. It's only there like twice, Over and over again, though, when it describes those who have been rescued by Jesus, it uses the term, in Christ. Over and over again, we are united to Christ. According to one scholar, Paul appeals to this concept of union with Christ. We are united to Christ over 160 times in his letters. If anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. We've been crucified with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What union with Christ means is that everything Jesus accomplished outside of us becomes ours, is credited to us through our being united to him, through our connection to him. According to to John Murray, union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Now, if that's, if seems that seems that seem a little kind of, you know, outlandish, I mean, kind of hard to get our mind around, really abstract, this union with Christ, how am I united to Christ? If you're anything like me, you, you, you struggle with this. What does that even mean? The concept is, is so abstract. That people don't talk about That's why we don't talk about this idea of being united with Christ, because I don't even know how to wrap my head around it. And yet, Jesus gives us here a beautiful illustration of what it means to be in Christ, united to Christ, when he compares himself to Jonah. In the same way... That that, that Jonah, on the verge of death, is now safe and secure with his life enveloped in the life of the one sent to rescue him. We too have been swallowed up by God's provision. We are in Christ. And therefore, all the benefits of what he did for us, they belong to us. They're now ours with our being in him. We are just like Jonah God's salvation is accomplished for us supernaturally outside of us, and we live in it. But this is not the only evidence of the supernatural that we see in this passage. God's supernatural salvation is not just outside of us, it's also within us. And that gets us to our second point for the day. In Jonah 2, we find this man who was running from God, and now he's running to God. This man who who had been told by pagan sailors to pray to his God is now seeking God's face. And if we're honest, for some of us, you know, we hear this and we sort of approach it with a certain amount of skepticism, right? Well, I mean, of course he starts to pray. Of course he starts to pray. His life's falling apart. He's about to die. I mean, we hear people, they're on their deathbed or they go to prison or their life's falling apart and we go, you know what, of course you start to pray then, there's skepticism. There's cynicism, perhaps. Which is crazy, and it shouldn't be the case. Because if, if, what we said last week, if God sends storms as a means of grace to rescue us, to bring us back to him, it would make perfect sense that people would, would pursue him when they hit rock bottom. If storms are a gift of grace for, for us to sense our need for God, it's only natural that we would turn to him. As a result, Jonah acknowledges this storm is your storm. He says, it, you cast me into the deep. Your billows and waves came over me. This storm is God's instrument to get his attention so that he might return back to God, or, or to use another term, so that he might repent. I don't know if what, what sort of comes to your mind when you hear the word repent? It's kind of like, I, I sort of think like driving down the interstate and there's just like the sign, it's like, repent, you know? It's just like this really negative, you know, hellfire brimstone, turn or burn kind of stuff. With the term repentance is not that at all. It, it's a beautiful, beautiful term. It means to turn around. It means to change your mind, both of which provide an accurate description of of Jonah's new posture towards God. Jonah's moving towards God rather than away from him. Jonah understands himself and what he's done differently. And so he's praying. Now, if the idea of being digested by a fish doesn't strike you as strange enough, the idea of Jonah sort of... In a fish, writing a poem might really get you, you know? And I sort of, I don't know where I got this, but I, I really, I'm, I'm looking, I'm, when I think of that, some, some picture book along the way I ran across, because I sort of think of Jonah like with like a, a feather pen, you know, by candlelight, just writing or drawing, you know, coming up with some poetic whatever. And, and obviously that, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. And it's not what happened, And as you look over Jonah chapter 2, what you find is not the most original work. It's actually plagiarism. I mean, this prayer actually sounds like what we looked at in our call to worship, or what we looked at in our assurance of pardon, or so many other psalms, for instance— What Jonah's doing in this moment of despair is all of a sudden he's appealing to the Psalms. He knows the Psalms. He knows the Psalter. Jonah's very, very familiar with it. Okay, and Nathan had a chance to, to walk us through a couple of Psalms. I love the fact that we look at Psalms in, in the summer because the Psalms are, are this, it's just this book of the Bible that God gives us as a gift to be really honest with Him about how we feel. The book of the Psalms are like, let me tell you, God, how I am doubting you. Let me tell you, God, about my hurt and my fear and my complaints. Let me tell you that, not so I can wallow. but but so that God can can use that as as a tool to remind me of what's ultimately true, what's really true. And so Jonah, in this moment of despair, starts praying the Psalter. He knows the prayers of David, of how God rescued David time and time again. Jonah can articulate these texts that describe God miraculously intervening to save his people. Jonah knows this. But there's so much more going on here than simply Jonah reciting Scripture verses. What's happening in Jonah chapter 2 is that these texts, which he knows so well, are becoming his story. Jonah may have had these texts memorized, but now they're being internalized. Jonah may have known a lot of information about God, but it's one thing to know about God's grace. It's another thing to experience God's grace. It's one thing to know that God can do these things. It's another thing to, to, to experience Him doing it for you. It's one thing to talk a good game. It's quite another to be in the game. And that's what Jonah, that's where Jonah finds himself now. What we find in Jonah, is, a person, is that a person can know a lot about God. They can know a lot about the scriptures. They can know a lot about theology. They can know a lot about doctrine, but never actually have experienced the message themselves. And it's a really good lesson for us, particularly us presbyterian type of folk. Okay? I want to be clear. I love the Reformed tradition. I'm here on purpose. I didn't grow up with this. Okay, I came later in the game. All right, um, I love things being decent and in order. Uh, I, all that stuff about the objective work of Christ earlier, being in Christ, that stuff sings to me. I love it. But one of the things that we can struggle with is focusing on our brains at the expense of our hearts. We're scared that, that, that if we get too into our feelings, make, make, that, 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 that's, that's charismatic stuff, okay? Kind of scared of that stuff, right? The gospel, however, does not exist to simply inform our intellects. Jesus did not come so that you could just know about God, but so that you would actually know God, so we might experience God, so we might enjoy a right, restored relationship with our Maker, so He might. Capture our affections so that we might have a real, tangible hope in the midst of our despair. Now Jonah, flailing about in a hurricane on the verge of drowning, with all that he describes in chapter 2, there's no disillusionment for him about his need for divine intervention. He knew how desperate and needy he was. And his prayer reflects that, that deep need. With an overwhelming gratitude for the grace of God. But do we see ourselves the same way? Do we perceive our situation the same way? Because functionally speaking, I'll be honest, I don't always feel helpless or hopeless. With all our resources, all of our resolve, all of our ingenuity, all of our connections, we think that, that whatever obstacle comes my way, I, I, could, I can overcome that. I mean, sure, if I'm stuck in the ocean, somebody's got to throw me a life preserver, but throw me that life preserver and I'll swim myself to shore. But it's only when we come to these situations where, where we've exhausted our resources, occasions where, where we realize that we are utterly incapable of rising to the challenge that comes before me, where, where, where moments where we feel beyond any hope whatsoever of fixing this problem ourselves, experiences where we're forced to stare in the face just just what a mess we are, that we begin to feel our need for God to come and rescue us. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, have you ever come to the place where, where you realize your complete and utter incapability Before, Because it's only then that the gospel becomes sweet. It's only then when Jesus not only is a Savior or even the Savior, but he is my Savior, who I love. And our love for Jesus and for what he has done will always be in direct proportion to the extent to which we think we actually need him. Jesus said as much. Luke chapter 7: when describing the sinful woman who, who comes and anoints his feet, Jesus says this, "She loves much, because she's been forgiven much, but whoever forgives little loves little." You see, as brilliant of a man as Thomas Jefferson was. The reason he cut divine inspiration I mean I'm sorry, divine uh, intervention out of the Bible is because he didn't think he needed it. The philosophy of the Enlightenment taught that that human beings, in essence, were good. What we need to do, we need to be taught. We need to be informed. We need to be given an example that we can then emulate. Jefferson miscalculated what humans being needed, and therefore he misunderstood Jesus. And we can do the same thing, too. Jesus did not, first and foremost, come to simply be our example, to simply teach us things. He came to be our Savior. Christianity is not simply, you know, philosophy for wise living. It's the story of God's rescue of salvation for people who desperately need it. The story of Christianity is not, go be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? Certainly there's a place for that. We'll get to that. But if I could actually be like Jesus through my efforts, Jesus would not have had to come. Be like Jesus gives me no hope. Before Jesus could ever be my example, he's got to be my Savior. But that salvation that Jesus accomplishes outside of us, it's got to be taken and applied to us. It's got to become ours. And the only way that's possible The only way it's possible for spiritually dead people whose natural disposition is to run from God, to to begin to look to him and turn to him, is for God to intervene. For the Holy Spirit to work within us and change our hearts, to take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Spiritually dead people don't wake themselves up. Spiritually blind people don't give themselves sight. Spiritually deaf people don't give themselves hearing. God's got to come to them and do that for us. And so the New Testament not only teaches that we are in Christ, it also teaches that Christ is in us. Jesus says it, Abide in me and I in you. Colossians 1, The mystery that has been made known, Christ in you. Romans 8, The Spirit of, uh, who raised Jesus from the dead is, is in you. And it's this Spirit that, that leads us to feel our need for Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus makes this statement, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or, as one pastor friend put it, Your feeling the need for Jesus is God's grace. Your feeling the need for God's grace is his grace. And to be clear, this is miraculous. Miraculous. It's miraculous for spiritually dead people to come to life. For someone to come to Jesus, a miracle has taken place because that does not happen by ourselves. One of the lessons that Jonah is going to teach us is that we don't simply need to come to God just the one time. Okay? Yes, we are justified that one time we place our trust in Christ, but we need to be saved from ourselves again and again and again. We need God to pursue us again and again and again so that we can live in humble dependency upon his grace. And there's a special, there's sort of an indicator to the extent that we're actually doing that. Now, I worry as I say this, this is going to sound like sort of like shaming you. Please don't hear it that way. I'm shaming myself even. But if you want to know the extent to which we're really relying on God's grace, it shows up in how we pray. How do we pray? Again, I don't want to throw shame on anyone, but, but, but if we really are desperate, needy, dependent recipients of grace... And it's going to show up in our prayer life because there is not a moment in our life that we can't look at Jonah chapter 2 and go, that's my story too. Not just the one time, but even now. And so, so I hope you hear this as an encouragement. If you struggle with prayer, and we all do, then start. Come to God and just say, I need you. Help, help. There's not a moment in your life on a moment in my life when I don't need the grace of God. Embrace that and appeal to the God who loves to, to answer our prayers. But, and with this we'll wrap up, the extent of God's Spirit working in our hearts is not simply prayer. Verse 9, Jonah says this, With a voice of thanksgiving I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. What Jonah means is that in light of the salvation he's experienced, he's going to obey now, which is the result of God's working in our lives as well, a renewed desire to obey him from a heart of gratitude. Jonah, what he's saying here is that he's now going to honor his vows as a prophet. He's ready to obey what God called him to do initially, to go to Nineveh and to preach. That's where we're headed next week. Pray with me if you would. Father, we give you thanks that you are God who is not only capable of the miraculous but, but performs the miraculous all the time, even still, for us and for our salvation. You've taken on flesh through your Son, by your Spirit, and you've breathed new life into our, into our hearts, and we ask that you would continue to work even in our midst, to, to draw people unto yourself. And Father, would you keep us ever mindful, ever mindful of, of the salvation that you've provided so that we would abide in you and you in us and live in light of that reality. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.